0: welcome everybody to this julie's bicycle live chat Um, our topic today is what does meaningful engagement in sustainability look like Uh, and i'm joined by two wonderful speakers who uh, i will shortly introduce to you Um, my name is Shola johnson and i'm head of creative programs at julie's bicycle Uh, and this uh, live chat is part of a national program of uh, chats, webinars, events and resources that we're doing in partnership with Arts Council England to look at how the arts and culture can lead on uh, addressing climate change in practical uh, and creative ways. Um, so with me to discuss this question are Lucy Neal and David Willans. Lucy is a writer and author of Playing for Time, she's also a theatre maker, facilitator and co-chair of Transition Town Tooting Uh, And that's amongst many of the roles and accolades we could mention, but we'll keep it brief and hear more from Lucy herself about her work in this area. And David is a sustainability communications specialist and he's director at Kin & Co currently. And David's also done a lot of work with Judy's Bicycle around the questions of how we communicate sustainability effectively Um, and how we engage people in various ways, whether that's engaging people within an organisation to undergo a process of change together, or uh, it's um, engaging audiences and it's of work about climate change and so on. Uh, This is obviously an area that Lucy has a huge amount of experience in as well. So um, there are lots of things uh, we could possibly Comment on. We've got uh, a few questions to kick us off from Twitter. And if anybody is out there listening live uh, in this chat or on Twitter, please do tweet your questions and comments using the hashtag greenarts. And you can follow what's happening uh, already if you go to the hashtag now. Um, and it's a huge topic. But what I'll do is to start off, uh, ask both Lucy and David to just tell us a bit more about their work. Um, in relation to culture and sustainability and um, border, um, and just speak a bit about how from their perspective it connects to this question of what meaningful engagement in sustainability looks like and I'll pass over to Lucy to kick us off.
1: Um, well my background is as a theatre maker I set up and ran with Rose Fenton the mm-hmm. London International Festival Theatre for 25 years so that's quite a chunk of life experiences which certainly taught me and shaped the way i look at how any creative engagement in this case it was through the theater becomes a prism through which you look at social change historical change people stories and so on and it was during our years at lift that we initially began to engage artists around issues of ecology. Vandana Shiva gave a lecture at the Natural History Museum in 2003, connecting cultural diversity and biodiversity. But it wasn't really until I left leading a big uh, busy arts organization job that I began to look at the way the world was. So if I were to answer the question, what does meaningful sustainability look like? as I was sort of, I don't know, around 2004, 2005, it would definitely have been to have educated myself looking at carbon and climate and energy and and what felt like a very intense 360 degree look at what was happening in terms of ecological collapse. Um, Some years on down the line today, I'd answer the question differently because with that, 360 degrees kind of growing awareness, but combining that with a theatre-making background and an absolute passion and commitment to understanding how our own creativity connects to intentional change. I would say that, you know, the role I seek to play, you know, in my own life as much as anything else um, is to really make visible and reclaim something of a traditional role of the artist in the community as a storyteller as an agent of change and I feel very excited about that because it's it was a lot of work to do to, to raise the visibility of an artist's role in that and sorry they came together recently in a book that was published which I have here which was called uh, playing for time making art as if the world mattered And it's a handbook which really attempts to begin to describe a a very particular creative practice, which anybody, anybody can pick up uh, and use on a day-to-day
0: basis. Great, thank you. And over to you, David.
2: Sure, so... um... I, I guess my background's sort of more in a, a commercial world in a way. Uh, I studied sustainability with Forum for the Future uh, way back when, and then um, found myself with, a, a, at the time, a small company called Futera that specialized in sustainability communications. And I spent a long time there working with NGOs um, and smaller organizations on specific campaigns and big corporates uh, on how you. Change their, particularly their internal culture around sustainability, and how you how you build that into what the business is about. Um, I've learned a huge amount along the way, and, and since sort of leaving Futera, worked with a number of different communications agencies, and now at Kin and Co, and we very much focus on this idea of how do you how do you make sustainability, for want of a better word, uh, you know, purpose, doing the right thing. Um, these kind of phrases. How do you make it? How do you make? How do you bring meaning into an organisation, into what it stands for, and how do you articulate that clearly, so that people get it and can act on it, and know implicitly inside themselves what it means to live up to a certain set value um, or principle? Um, and then we help them communicate that. And I think, and um, I think of what it, what meaningful engagement means. Um, it, it, it's very much. And more emotional than it is rational rational the rational sort of engagement of why sustainability is important etc is is important in that in that engagement but actually the emotion is really what makes something meaningful because it speaks to, to, the, to the sort of the, the human inside and the, the citizen almost um but for that to be effective it needs to be very focused i'm a big believer in sort of single focus you know because particularly in sustainability with such a broad church Um, it's very easy to sort of try and do too much whereas actually I think you make progress by focusing on one thing and moving that forward Uh, whether that's a particular audience group you're trying to reach a particular message or issue you're focused on doesn't really matter that focus for me is, is is what really makes engagement meaningful provided it's got this emotional connection to it
1: one of the things that helped me over the last eight years or so and currently is the fact that i'm involved locally where i live in tooting uh, in a transition town and the experience of working with others in very practical ways Um, and certainly david your point about being choosing something to really focus on and bring your skills and energy to Certainly, that's what I feel I've learned. That, you know, eight years ago, I would have thought that I had to suddenly overnight become an expert in measuring carbon and, you know, how a community energy project was going to get going. And then I increasingly realized that my real interest was around the imagination and our creative skills. And that's the thing I could focus on whilst acknowledging the context, whilst acknowledging the planetary context you know, the ecological, economic, energy challenges. So there was a kind of shift in what I was working on. But in the end, inside, it didn't actually feel that different. But I think the transition town context I have found, and I, I can't speak for others, is that it does create that context, you know, that change can happen, change is happening. And looking at modeling it in, how we live in every aspect of our lives, actually where we live and accountable over the longer term, project to project over time. There's a meaningful laboratory there in the real world, you know, outside your door. And the knowledge that that connects up and obviously it's not exclusive in any way because it connects up with every other kind of community activism happening in a million different ways around the world. But it gives you confidence gives you permission to try anything anything at all that you feel particularly passionate about you know whatever that might be you can go through that door and go well we all need to experiment together here i'll give this a go
2: yeah and i think that experimentation is key because human beings naturally sort of tried to find a silver bullet or a shortcut or the formula for uh and it <laughs> doesn't exist uh within particularly when you have a whole bunch of humans working on something and you scale that up globally there isn't such a uh, simple approach it's it's always lots of different people trying things lots of influences on the system shifting in a particular direction um and there's a there's a lovely quote that i always like to i can't remember who it was by but it it says uh, progress is a race between we used to say progress is a race between catastrophe and education and this the famous author back in the sort of 40s, I think. But I think now more and more so it's this, um, progress is a race between catastrophe and creativity. So I think we've got so much education, there's so much information, there's so much access to it, um, that that's not the that's not the solution. The solution is the creative mind applying it and going, well, how can we make this work? How can we change that? And just relentlessly trying and coming up with new things and enjoying the process, sharing learnings, because. Finding the sort of ways through, I think that's the um, that's a really yeah. important approach to engagement.
1: I mean, one of the reasons I called the book, which in essence is a transition book of the arts in many ways, I called it "Playing for Time" because what our current situation elicits mostly is fear, and fear really narrows learning and it narrows creativity, and I wanted to draw attention to how playing the role of the artist actually makes imaginary space and it makes play possible. And it's in the act of play that we, we can rehearse all kinds of alternative scenarios. And it's, it's from those expanded possibilities that different futures emerge. So it's a paradoxical, you know, we live in very fearful times, but the very thing we have to do play and we have to play together because then we things emerge you know out of the complexity of of the challenges all kinds of new scenarios emerge but if we can't get at what can emerge and that has to be everybody you know occupy said when everything needs changing we need everybody so i think there's a very particular skill that the artist or storyteller or maker or designer or creative agent, whatever, is in framing and holding those spaces in which absolutely everybody's voice, hopes, fears. It's, it's a soft, uh, Maria Amidou calls this a soft, performative role. I sometimes see it in terms of dramaturgy. You know, how do we act? How do we, all, how do we find stories in a form that can be acted? But I think what becomes really exciting and meaningful in terms of engagement and sustainability is as you've said, David, is that when people identify that sense of agency in themselves, but surely you were saying that you've seen that, you know, that's a shift of perspective. And it's very existential. You know, we're, we're living through a massive existential crisis. What is it to be human? We've lost the plot of what it is to be human. We don't want to be humans wrecking the planet. So there's a sense we've got to go back. We've got to return. We've got to reconnect from an idea of what it is to be human. Who do we connect to? With whom? How? How do our connections with the natural world, other species? And I just find anything to do with... um, the arts and creativity, it has always looked at those questions.
0: I think there's something uh, very interesting in what, in what both of you are saying uh, around that particularly, um, and just listening to you both, another type of, um, well another definition of being meaningful also emerged, which is how how is how we are engaging meaningful to the environment as well as meaningful to us, and by that I mean um, in this space of creativity, imagination, play, and yes, exploration of our emotions and the existential nature of how it is to be human, how do we also, um, and is it important to create uh, some kind of frame and focus in the same way that, you know, you mentioned transition towns, um, and this speaks to David's early point about how you create focus. And transition town is this amazing plethora of initiatives, which is all driven by uh, a goal to look at what a post oil society looks like or community looks like and that's That's an incredible focus within which though there is this plethora of responses and continually emerging new ways of um, of responding to to that question so I wonder what you both think about that balance between uh, between, uh, you know, enabling a creative process to address, you know, what is the biggest you know human challenge with a hard planetary challenge, perhaps, um, in, you know, within human history. Um, and, you know, the, the need for focus around what we know will make a difference to the environment, you know, when we know, like we know that a post-oil society is one that will definitely be better for the environment. So,
2: I wonder what you both think about that Good question. Go for it, David. Nah. <laughs> um, yeah I guess um, so one of the things that I've been doing a lot of uh, work around and, and, and exploring is is organizational development um, I'm going to take a little tangent and then come back to the question directly um, there's uh, an amazing uh, book called Reinventing organizations by Frederick Lelou. Um, and it charts the sort of history of different types of organizations going from, he, he uses a sort of color code, so red being um, very much a kind of sort of, the uh, examples of mafia organization. So, you know, you do this or you die sort of approach, very, very old human societies and civilizations. Then he takes it into a sort of uh, an amber, which is much more sort of structural and you're you're a kind of a cog in a machine. So... Um, 1950s kind of job for life uh, bureaucratic America. You know that that side of things. Everyone's got a job at Ford. Um, the, the orange, which is sort of where he's saying, particularly kicked off in the 80s, and is, is very prevalent now, is this performance-driven thing where everyone is focused on um, on the data, on the numbers, on driving profit, 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 and the, and the, there's sort of a reaction to each one. So. The reaction of the fear in the red was structure safety um and control the sort of reaction from that structure and control was a sense of let's do what we're here to do and focus the rea- but and then the next layer that he talks about is, is green which is where there's a much more sort of social dimension to it which questions the purpose of profit and says well actually this needs to be about more than this and that's the sort of the, the kind of CSR sustainability side of things we're seeing so the next level that there's, there's a number of organisations operating, is far more decentralised, and that's about, well, let's create a shared purpose and let's um, trust the humans and create adult organisations. So we're not structuring it and we're not setting strict processes in place that effectively infantilize people, we're, we're trusting that they're, they're adults, they're going to bring their whole self to the, the cause of this organisation um, and make it successful and the evidence he puts forward is very compelling. Um, everything from a sort of a metal factory uh, in France to a sort of air um, business in the Netherlands um, that run in this kind of very uh, adult way almost, very sort of decentralised and not democratic but um, around humans coming together in small groups to uncover problems to to organize themselves and i think one of the things we we tend to be in danger of as as people is trying to put structures and processes and frameworks in place that um strain rather than enable and unlock and i think when you when you think around focus how do we get focus while create while sort of creating these enabling processes i think that focus is the sort of you know, we saw it with sort of the Occupy movement coming out, this sense of we're pissed off about this and there's a whole bunch of us going to get together and do something about it. I think that focus naturally emerges from groups, Um, you know, whether that's the climate movement, um, uh, the sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of resurgence in feminism that we've got at the moment, the kind of Black Lives Matter in the States. When there's a problem, there's a reaction, people come together around it. I guess what we perhaps need to be better at doing is is the focus after that, when we've harnessed that energy and that purpose and saying, right, what is it we're specifically trying to change? Or we've got a vision, what are the steps to get there? And where are we going to focus all this amazing energy so we're not just kind of venting effectively and, and we're not kind of going through that cathartic process, but that quickly turns into action that is Uh, driving specific systems change, you know, in the same way that the Occupy movement suddenly gave rise to this sort of birth of the the focus on the kind of Robin Hood tax. uh, And then that, you know, started to put some pressure on governments to start to look at actually taxing financial institutions when they're moving money around. And you can see how that sort of story builds. um, But it's a really difficult thing and i don't I don't think there is a lovely model much as I love lovely models with my kind of strategy hat on that simplifies it that much i think it's it's each issue, each community, each location is very different and they, I think we need to sort of enable celebrate, and also kind of challenge people to get there, but at the same time trust that they're going to figure it out because they're human beings you know, they're passionate, they've created a movement, you know, they can do it, and we've got to believe in them, but we also have to sort of challenge them a little bit to to, to go beyond just campaigning and just getting angry or, you know, to take it to the next level and provide a solution.
1: Yeah, it's, it's an intense time to be alive, really, because it's both very, very complicated, because both the systems that we've got, which over history we've created, whether they're governance or economic systems or energy systems, but we've also got emerging the new systems which have a hope of sustaining life on Earth. And any one day, we're kind of caught in the crosswinds between between both these. You know, we, we may think we're working on the new emergent positive ones, but we'll all be caught up in the old ones so it's complex but at the other time it's very very simple you know our own i mean i'm thinking of one project that i'm also involved in called the happy museum which really looks at how our own well-being and the well-being of the planet you know it's they're the same thing but i've seen within the museum sector working around the principles of the happy museum which helps to hold that frame of our own well being and the well being of the planet together. You know, these pennies drop for people to go, yeah, this is complex. But if I keep my focus and I'm given the space to work both within an organization where I have a professional role to play, I can also bring myself into that and I keep my eye on the good changes that I want to happen, then actually there's a, there is a kind of magic that happens when, as you say, David, a group can kind of keep their eye and be very vigilant about making choices. It's, it's, it all comes down to that. It's about decision-making. And I think whilst I'm really excited at how the public narrative seems to have really hugely shifted since um, COP, there the definitely seems to be a, a, a kind of um, a mark in the sand historically then loads ifs and buts and work to do but there seems to be a shift in awareness but the real task it seems to me is this um, what I would call practice of community and that's not simple you know they I think um, a lot of the kind of climate camp and civil disobedience movements have have done extraordinary work in the consensus decision-making and how do you act collectively? How do you make decisions? And I think honing that, you know, we all have to work with the people that are in the room um, and how we become community creatures and how we get collective decision-making far more normalized and of course older indigenous cultures have always had that mm. it takes time to gather to listen in council to hear every view to take everybody together mm. and we just, you know in our country have much more the kind of snip snip time is money blue, blue, move move blue, and top down decision making um, and somebody called barbara clinson a geographer she talked about the politics of delivery and the politics of invention and of course the politics of invention is bottom up grassroots collective plural you know the globalization from below but we've got a lot of top-down delivery uh, politics of delivery and it's, it's how they meet in the middle really and find a common language but do you, you see evidence of that you know um
2: to a degree i guess i mean you know you look at particularly say innovation and the innovation technologies enabling so you look at things like um crowdfunding crowdcube cedars all these uh, kickstarter all these things are are effectively democratizing um the, the the ability to fund ideas to take them to reality um I think that's an incredibly exciting space where people are saying, you know, um, I've got this idea. I've got this business. I want to. Do, I want to do things in this way. Um, going through a traditional, through the traditional route to a bank that has its traditional checklist, you need to meet these criteria, et etc., um, would constrain innovation to, you know, massively. Uh, and to be honest, make it the privilege of the of the wealthy. Um, but when you've got the ability to go out and say that I've got this idea. You know, obviously you work really hard to get it to a point where you can pitch it and you think it through, but you pitch it and people are like, yeah, I'd like to see that in the world. I'd like to have that light on my bike. I'd like to see an organisation that does that. I'd like to read that book. Um, you know, I'd like to have that service provided to me. Yeah, I'll put some money into it to support it, to see it to see it emerge in the world. I think that's a, you know, so you do see these signs where technology effectively is enabling um Sort of decentralisation and democratisation of change, rather than it being the big corporates and the and the politicians and the big financiers able to control that. Um, uh, Yet at the same time, so we're working on a campaign at the moment called We Are Europe, um, which is about the referendum. Obviously, including the title, but um, and what we and it came about because someone sent a friend sent an email around saying just seen this someone should do something and it was the fact that um the sort of the, the polls were showing that the older majority of the older um, population in the UK wanted to vote out and in terms of turnout and engagement in politics now religiously every single sort of vote the you know the younger demographic kind of 18 to 40s um really largely wanted to stay in you know it's their future but Turnout rates are pretty low, particularly when you get down to that sort of 18 end. Of, I think it's kind of might even be around 20 to 35 percent. Um, and so we saw this and we're like, someone's got to do something. And then we everyone went quiet and we were a bit like, mm, that's got to be us really, hasn't it? Because no one else is going to do something. Um, and it's 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 a shame that there's these are such fundamental and um, irreversible decisions that the, the people that they are going to most affect are not engaged in the mechanism and the process through which these decisions get made. Um, you know, one, there was a quote from one of the uh, Brexit um, funders in on a trip to America recently, and he said, look, our strategy is to bore the electorate. If there's low turnout, we win, we're out. You know, so our strategy is the opposite. It's to go, well, you know, this is our future, Let's let's something about it this is why we love Europe let's remove the fear let's remove the traditional political game of he said she said and let's argue over stats that to be honest no one really knows what's going to happen this is a decision of principle and so if you can take it to that principle then you can hopefully start to engage the people who are disengaged who actually need to be engaged uh, because they're gonna have to live with it Um, so yeah I think so there are signs of some hope Um, But there are also signs that, well, more signs that the traditional system is broken and needs fixing in a big way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's something also very interesting in what both of you were saying um, around the different kinds of change uh, processes. Well, really, how change works, which seems to be that actually ownership matters, um, you know, in the, in the way that you were talking about, Lucy, uh, you know, more traditional uh, or distributed decision-making systems of consultation and communal consensus um, and what you were saying about crowdfunding and also, you know, how you develop, you know, a, how you develop a successful turnout in terms of votes for an issue that you care about, um, which is that perhaps if people feel like they have ownership um, over something and its possible outcome, then they perceive agency within themselves. And um, in the way that, particularly, our society, sort of developed Western society, is set up, we don't necessarily have, perceive that we have ownership over a lot of the decisions and systems that we use on a daily basis or that we make on a daily basis. Um, so I wonder if that's something to tease out a bit more, you know, in what way, you know, David, you've talked about the campaigning stuff, Lucy, maybe there are ways in which, and it might connect back to the work of, you know, how artists enable people through the pro- the, the, their creative process, um, how we, or whether you even agree with this, but how we kind of encourage a sense of ownership over decisions and, and change itself uh, to move people towards new ways of thinking and doing um, and being. Well I've, certainly well,
1: I've certainly witnessed, for myself and others, <laughs> when you have the opportunity to properly see um, a system, you know, whether it's our food system, whether it's the economic system, political system, that you see that systems are things that we have designed and made. There's a um, get a broader view of how that system came into place but also where you can intervene in it. So just as an example um, Anne-Marie Culhane who's an artist working uh, with Ruth Levine in a field in Lincolnshire on a farm which is the breadbasket basket uh, in England and they have a project called a field of wheat, field of wheat actually you know, here I've even got some soil middle field Um, and they're working with a farmer over a year they've created a collective of people who are part a community in the field of wheat different dispersed but the what we're learning is both the system of the wheat with the sun and the rain growing seeded and being harvested but also the financial systems because that wheat has to be sold on a global commodities market. So it's a project by some artists, but it's it sort of put its toe into two systems, if you like, the farming growing one and the financial commodities market. And it sort of opens up and reveals absolutely everything that's going wrong, you know, with our food growing systems and the markets that, that attend them. And it just gives you real insight into how we change them. And I think artists play an important role in sort of being circuit breakers, sort of flipping a switch and creating a kind of lateral take on uh, all kinds of ways in which we engage with systems. And this sort of simple knowledge, but it takes a long time to get to it, is that systems can be recreated and and yes we have technologies yes there are all kinds of things but the idea of a cultural shift and a sort of cultural revolution if you like of understanding that we can all have a role to play uh, that could happen technically overnight i
2: think
0: this is powerful in terms of um that act of, well, artists witnessing and exposing, and you know, looking at where that happens and what sits alongside that um, that connects people with with what it is that they're exposing. Um, so there's really nice stories, for example, from the documentary world, um, where when Blackfish uh, was put out, which is about the treatment of uh, animals at Sea World. Um, actually, kind of kids and their families decided to start boycotting SeaWorld, and it had a very tangible impact on their um, on their sales. Uh, and I think similar things have happened with other documentaries around fishing and tuna fishing and um, and that's obviously one very particular form, but I think it's a great example of where, you know, as David was kind of saying, broken bits of the system are are exposed um and alongside that people are given uh people are able to relate that directly to the choices they make to say here's the broken bit in the system and here's a choice i can make now to uh to kind of act on it almost david you were gonna you were gonna say something
2: yeah i was gonna say i think i think um creativity is incredibly important in that that sort of Tipping the switch, uh, as you said, Lucy, of um, helping people to see things differently, and to, to sort of open their minds to make uh, to make the invisible, previously invisible, visible. Whether that is simply, look, here's how this actually works. Did you realise that it's not that complicated? Naturally, it's a bit screwed up, um, but you know, to just seeing things in a completely different light. So, one of my favourite um, examples in this space is the is the Museum of Water. Um, and water from a, a sort of communications perspective, it's a really difficult thing to get people to cherish and to, to save and to use less of because it's so every day. You, know? um, it's, 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 you know, you don't even think about it when you're getting a glass of water. It's you're, 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 you're seeing if your cup's full or not. You're not thinking about the content. Um, you know, it rains every day. So the idea of water, water rains in the UK, so the idea of water scarcity just feels very counterintuitive for people. But I think um, uh, what the artist can't remember her name yes, that's it. Uh, I had Horrocks in my head um, uh, what she did was was sort of show how uh, basically in in all sorts of little different interesting containers um, captured water from um, you know the sort of condensation from from so and so's hotel uh, uh, um, a room in Hackney on their twelfth, you know, when on their twelfth birthday, or the snowman that so and so made with their kids uh, when they were, you know, young, or water from Glastonbury. or just they, they they effectively gave the story to the to the um, fluid and by doing that. And humans being kind of story machines, making and consuming, um, gave it a lot more meaning. Uh, I don't, you know, in terms of actually how that translated to changing behaviour, who knows, but you can imagine certain things following on from that of, well, here's a little vessel for you to take home. As you've gone round and sort of seen all these different stories of, like, wow, that's from there, and you conjure up the the place and the time in your head, take yeah. your own little bottle away and fill it up and have, or have it by the sink, you know? Oh, sorry, my, uh, the room I'm in has motion sensors, and if I sit still for long... <coughs> About the environment, sometimes bad things. Um, so, so yeah, that that for me is an incredibly powerful thing. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't necessarily have to be creativity that drives it. So, I remember sitting in a meeting with uh, with Greenpeace and a whole bunch of apparel makers, and they um, Greenpeace very, very eloquently and very gently said, "Look, we you know there's a big problem with chemical use in China, where most of your factories are. We've done a lot of research, and we've got a few reports out um, ready to go." And we've got all the journalists lined up. And what we'd like you to do is to commit to reduce your uh, uh, the chemical output or to influence the factories, to reduce their chemical output in the water. Um, you know, it would be great if you would, if you would pledge to do that before we release the reports. Um, you know, come and talk to us. It was incredibly gentle. There was no sort of aggression, campaigning, activism. It was just that this is the situation. This is what we're going to do. You kind of know what the impact's going to be. You can read between the lines. And we're, we're opening our arms to help you here. Um, you know, that's another way of, of engagement being meaningful. Um, was it creative? Uh, yeah, you could probably argue from strategically as opposed to activism, it's creative. Um, re- you know, it goes, comes back to focus. You know, they, they really focused on what the issue was, what the stakeholders were in, uh, interested in, what they cared about. Um, and therefore, drove some change in a, in a big way. Actually, it's their detox campaign. Um, yeah, does that have to be pulling think, it from a few different angles? There, I'm just going to stand up and jump around to get some lights on.
1: <laughs> I think that this idea of what does meaningful engagement and sustainability look like? It it is creating a culture of care. I heard that phrase the other day about we have a culture of uncare, and, and a lot of things that are wrong are about that lack of care. Um, and just to follow up the Museum of Water, it's important to know that Amy Sharrocks and the Museum of Water are in Rotterdam at the moment for a whole year. And the water they're, they're collecting that is precious to people in um, at Rotterdam and around is that it's um, providing the occasion for all the water specialists and all the water policy makers and all kind of government departments and anybody around Rotterdam and in the Netherlands that is trying to make decisions at the moment about water. It's the Museum of Water that has opened a space that's celebratory, that's collectively created, that's given a stage for all those questions about future scenarios, about making change, for all those other sectors together. And I think that is... You know, that, you can see that repeated again and again. And again, it's that sort of push that little toe into a system. And then you've opened up a space, which ultimately does become an imaginative space. I mean, I imagine that Greenpeace meeting, there must have been some tone or atmosphere at the meeting that allowed that sort of human exchange, which was about we could we know what could happen that way. And how do we just hold it for long enough? somebody can go uh maybe there could be something different that could happen Mm -hmm. it's a broad canvas i think that's very
0: interesting um i'm gonna bring in our uh one of our twitter questions here because it links quite nicely to the theme of activism that's come up several times um which is uh, a question from at, at kate farewell Um, And they've uh, shared a Guardian article on this topic and asked, is civil disobedience the only way to fight climate change now? And I think within that, is it it the best way to uh, fight climate change now? Um, Really big question. Um, David, do you wanna kick us off?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. It's it's a very big question. uh, I guess so, there's a couple of things in it, um, fighting climate change, the, the, the assumption that that word has in the question, um, I'm not sure that's the right place to start from. I, you know, I certainly agree that civil disobedience is important to create a sense of urgency and uh, to a degree shock around the realities where we are and you know what we've already committed ourselves to collectively uh and what we may well be committing ourselves to in the future if we don't change what we're doing um uh, i don't see it as a it's not a force we can fight it's something we've created and we need to learn how to work with in order to change both ourselves and the climate you know it's not these aren't two opposing things but it's part of the same system um I think civil disobedience is incredibly important in driving that change and waking people up. Um, but the the mechanisms to then implement the necessary changes are, unfortunately, largely sit in the traditional system. You know how we heat and power our our, our our buildings, how we you know how we move things around the transport infrastructure, and and those the decisions there lie in a political space largely. Um, you know I believe we've got the technology to do. Pretty much to solve climate change, if we had the will, Um, the will being the problem, policy being the solution that can kind of unlock that, and civil disobedience being one of the driving forces um, that will help to spark that will and create motivation. Um, Certainly not the only thing, Um, you know. As we talked about earlier, change is so complicated that we need. it coming from all angles. We need the pressure building from, uh, you know, additional activism, shutting down coal power stations like it's it's happened recently to incredible solutions to successful stories of of interventions really working and communities coming together to solve problems. It's happening with, um, you know, micro uh, community level generation around the UK now. Um, There's so many different forces that need volume turned up on that civil disobedience is definitely part of that but um, it's it's not the only answer and I don't think we should see it as a fight. Um, I think that sets us up for I think that's the wrong mindset with which to approach the problem.
0: Yeah I'll I'll just clarify for the purposes of reference in the article that it is very much about Um, about fossil fuels and within the context of the new Paris agreement to ideally limit uh, global warming to 1.5 degrees Um, and the question of whether the market's moving fast enough but as you've said David you know there are lots of different reasons why the market is now moving faster that includes Mm -hmm. civil disobedience and direct action but also includes you know, investor confidence now that the the agreement's in place and it's been, you know, signed by a record number of countries, the emergence of cheaper renewable energy, you know, new models of financing and uh, and developing projects like community renewables, you know, all of those, I suppose, create an ecology, let's say, of, of ways of responding, which has a place for civil di- disobedience, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, but do- shouldn't be framed by the idea of a fight. Um, yeah.
2: And I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, that we've had a lot of uh, investor shareholder activism is that given the fossil fuel industry operates, uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't happen on the streets. Picketing BP, uh, you know, around Tate, et cetera. Yes, it, it has an impact. It raises some awareness and creates some energy. But the decisions are made, you know, at the AGMs so made in terms of framing the legal frameworks. What it'd be, I'd be really interested to think, to explore what disobedience or activism look like from a legal perspective or from a more, you know, it's happening more in the, in the investor community um, with the divestment campaign and raising the cons of that. Um, that, that. I think if you're thinking about where's the biggest lever or the, the lever that's got the most impact, it's in that space, the legal framework, the policy frameworks and the uh, investor spaces so how what's the how could disobedience, disobedience be used to really crank that lever um is where i think the focus should be yeah
1: i, I like what Krista mayer who's a neuroscientist at king's working at the moment on how our beliefs and values are shaped and the early research seems to suggest that that how we act actually shapes our beliefs and values rather than the other way around and I think civil disobedience is completely critical absolutely vital for you know historically change has always been brought about you know from the street up and it's there's evidence to show that you know going on a march or being part of a direct action has always played if you talk to people there was always a point you know when they were doing that, that some other level of their sort of awareness um, and awakening kind of shifted the gear. I think I like what Joanna Macy says as well, because she says, you know, there are a million ways in which she has this phrase of the great turning from the growth industrial society to a life sustaining society, and millions of ways that change is happening. Um, But there are three principally, one she talks about holding actions which kind of prevent the damage of the collapse. So those are legal frameworks that prevent biodiversity loss or, you know, plundering of natural resources or protection of the people. And that requires, you know, protest. It requires standing up against things, putting your body in the line. And the disobedience is absolutely critical in that regard. But she'd also says that's where burnout happens because there's so many defeats along the way. So you need, in addition, you need new structures, you need alternative structures, and that would be your political systems, that would be your you know, community uh, startups, or, you know, all the experimentation around the alternative, stru- alternative structures that we need. And that is an area of huge experimentation, the green shoots coming up through the rubble. They're not enough, the actions, the structures are not enough. The third thing, which sort of helped, they're all, you, know, you could do them all three in the same day they're not uh, exclusive in any way but they complement and hold and um, give to each other but the third is in many ways the most interesting which is what she would say is a shift of consciousness which is a shift of values and beliefs and that our contemporary biological sciences for the very very first time are kind of meeting much older more indigenous ways of thinking spiritual traditions which is around connection and a web of life and that everything in the universe is about links and relationships and connections it's not an adversarial culture where this wins or that it's systemic and it's connections and so maximizing all the ways in which we're able to connect to each other our communities the natural world and those three ways show to me civil disobedience is absolutely vital but it needs these other two to kind of make the circle really move fast. You know? And I think the work, you know, the images that have come out of Liberate, Tate, Earth, Not oil. you know, we can all think of those quite iconic pictures that are now kind of out in the world that have come out of those actions. They're powerful in terms of how they encapsulate um, the key thing that I think is going to be the successful driver of all this which is injustice you know I think that we will engage with injustice that is what makes us rise up this is not fair there's so many ways in which this is not fair that's happening but we need to hear that fabulous sort of plurality of voice we need to hear from everybody you know that rising up is going to say no no we need this alternative
0: yeah, I mean, we've both talked about um, how difficult this issue can be, and you, you before before this question, we were also you were also saying, Lucy, about how we need to cultivate a culture of care, and I think that's a really critical question. How do we how do we make people care?
1: Well, I think we're important. I think that looking at this. It just sounds a bit dipsy but looking after ourselves is important you know once one's kind of woken up to the work to do you think actually this is work for the rest of my life you know I've, why would I do anything different until the day I die so I need to keep well for that and I need to be um, not just making meaning in it but joy in it and and well-being and I think well-being You know, in the happiness, they're fuzzy little words. Very strong as Trojan horses to look at uh, how we take care of ourselves. I think it's easy sometimes to keep active and going and going and going. We have to come back to ourselves that, that we matter personally if we want to make space for other things
0: to matter. David, you've obviously worked with a lot of different brands and organizations that reach kind of thousands if not millions of people sometimes people who might not yet be at the stage of even understanding the scale of the challenge that we have and i i really like that image of you know well-being and self-care as the trojan horse uh, through which you know we can absolutely expand on and explore these things, you know, how, how in your experience has it been possible if to work at that scale to get people to care um, through, you know, through different mechanisms to kind of get a critical mass of people in that, in that space?
2: Yeah, I think the people do care already it's that they, they're not. They're either not taking action, or the actions they're taking are very small and very um, centred on self. Almost. Uh, there's a, I worked on a, a, a project very recently with a, a huge uh, um, coffee brand, and um, they were looking very much at, at trying to reach a sort of a younger uh, generation, sort of sixteen to kind of thirty, and globally and what they saw was that there's this sort of, very difficult to articulate but this sense of the, the issues that were coming out, you know, these are generations that have either um, lived through or have not known um, a world without nine eleven. you know, 9 is a big feature in, in the sort of 30-year-olds and the, the younger generation, they, that was what they were brought up with. Um, you know, they're, they're aware of challenges through social media, etc., through the interconnectedness Technology of the world, um, you know, they've seen auster- austerity. Uh, they certainly have the younger ones. Certainly have more realistic expectations of the world. You know, they don't expect to move out of home uh, in the in the developed world. This is out of home anytime soon. They know that owning a house is may or may not be possible. Um, you know, they've seen their parents out of work. There's a certain sense of realism, and you see you see signs of this of, of people asking almost, "Well, what's the point? What does this mean?" Why, why am I doing this? Uh, you know, where do I get the most sense of satisfaction from? And the, you know, the, the rise of, of platforms like Facebook, et cetera, a testament to the fact that people are recognizing they get more of their sense of satisfaction in self from connecting with others. That's why these things are so popular is because that need for that connection is so strong. Um, you know, that's why there are one of the reasons why there's declining car sales in the U.S. Apparently, is because young people don't really want to buy a car. They don't really need the freedom that it represented way back where They've got it through digital. Um. And you know the the sort of this the sense of the rise of well being mindfulness um, of, of of looking at health from a an exercise perspective, but also a diet perspective. You know, you've got um, and and Beyonce, that at one point they were, they might still be vegans. Uh. You know, there's there's lots of, there, there are loads of little signs of a, a, a kind of a shift happening. Um, I think, and I think people do care, We if if, if do a lot of work on values. Um, and if you look at sort of the values that run across humans, regardless of um, where they are in the world and their social status, etc., that sense of, of being a good person and relationships being incredibly important and holding yourself with respect and dignity, uh, are universal and i think if we can more rather than getting people to care it's how do we how do we enable them to act how do we make it okay for them to uh to show that side of themselves in certain situations and going right back, almost back to the beginning of our conversation the role of the artist um whether that artist is using visual medium whether it's it's experiential whether it's music whether it's sport to a degree you know whether it's design whatever it, the medium is it's creating that space for people and making it safe for them to explore that and to to sort of say, yeah, that's important to me too. You know, Um, uh, the kind of rise of Tom's shoes. You can see they're fashionable. Obviously, they're now a statement of saying, I buy these shoes because uh, I want to be seen to be the kind of person who basically gives a shit and, uh, you know, cares about more than just myself. Um, So, yeah, I think it's more... How do we, how do we help people act rather than how do we get them to care?
1: There was an interesting piece in the Guardian yesterday about everyone being anxious, maybe it was Monday. But I was amazed that all these sources of anxiety. It never mentioned once that we might all be living on a planet which life has not sustained. It would have been an interesting article where uh, not only the causes of that anxiety planetarily, but all the ways in which you can connect and, you know, as I would say, become a player in action. Because there's evidence now to show that becoming a player in action makes you well. But actually it's it's the action that makes you feel, yeah, you know, I'm important. I've got a role to play. But it is a collective one. It's not just about me, 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 what I get, what I need. It's it's one that's being conducted on behalf of others. and. Can we empathise with future generations? That's a huge question about meaningful sustainability, how we empathise with people we're not going to meet or species.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of uh, tangentially connects to our, um, our second Twitter question, which was um, picking up on a point that we were discussing earlier about being uh, social creatures um, and what you were saying about collective decision making. Uh, Lucy, um, kind of directly asking, how do we make collective decisions? Um,
1: I, I think we're social creatures. I don't think we're yet community creatures. I think there's a big difference. There's a big difference. There. I think it's a practice we have to try. Um, in fact, I've got to go now to a community meeting. So,
0: excellent. Not too <laughs>
1: late for that. <laughs> it's it's, it's back. sideways, forwards, backwards, and a bit more forwards. You know, it's a it's an iterative process. It's fundamentally a learning process about how societies uh, innovate and reinvent themselves. And we have done that in the past. And historic examples of having done it to speed it up a bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, from a from the sort of organisational development work that we do there's uh there's two kind of principles that sort of pop out immediately one is um well three actually one is one is shared purpose i.e what are we all here to where are we trying to get to that gives you a kind of a focus for decision making which is very useful uh the other one which this is for organizations so may not work from a community perspective but it is is alignment not consensus um, so the idea being not everyone has to hard to support and um, you know, be enthusiastic for that option the decision, but actually, as long as no one's got a problem with it, then move because otherwise you you get you, you don't move for an organisation that means you just basically get left behind and you eventually die. Um, so that it's you know we're aligned on this decision. Yes, I might disagree on some bits, but I don't have a fundamental problem with it. Okay, so let's go. Um, and the third one is, is is how you engage in that decision-making process and, and doing it from a place of um, recognising that it's about the thing on the table that you're talking about and it's not the person you're looking in the eye. No, it's, it's you know, personalities, egos, leave them at the door. So, and have a, have a tense conflict discussion. Discussion, but make sure it's about the issue and not the personalities. Because as soon as the personalities come into play, that's when things get very painful, messy, um, and and you know potentially uh, you can't move them forward. Um, But by focusing on the issue at hand, have the discussion and the debate around what you think is right, solve that issue, or to make that decision, and keep the tension there, not in the personal space. That's the that's the sorts of principles that we work to within our organization and with others.
1: And making it clear that the common and the collective decision is genuinely better for everybody. The the facilitation skills of that process. I mean, I've yet to see one that's well done, that doesn't come up with a better outcome for everybody. And people acknowledging that, it's more than the sum of its parts.
2: Yeah, and the, the process you know the difference between when you start making decisions in that way at the beginning of the year by the end of the year it's tough individuals the, the the journey that they go through but by the end of it they're so much
1: more
2: have so much more energy and motivation they they are a real part of that decision-making process rather than it being the top-down disempowering thing um yeah it's it's amazing to see
0: Great well we've come to the end of our hour Um, so thank you both so much for your wonderful words and thoughts and discussion Um, I've enjoyed it immensely and I hope everybody who's been following the discussion has as well so I'll give you my uh, representative round of applause Um, uh, and uh, much thanks um If you've enjoyed the chat, uh, you can stick around on Twitter and we'll be around to answer any more questions. But for now, thank you to David and Lucy. Um, this recording will be made available as a podcast on the Judy's Bicycle website, of course, with the consent of our speakers. Um, and we'll be back again soon with another topic for discussion. Thank you.